You know, there are two anxieties that plague many of us. Two things that perplex us and cause us a sense of anxiety. The first is that we're anxious about an unchangeable past. We would like to change some things in our private histories, but obviously we're not able to do that. We're stuck with them. We can't undo what's already been done. And the second anxiety is that we long to control our future destinies, but our power to do that is very limited. Things happen that we never could anticipate and certainly never wanted. So we have two longings that are at the root of our anxieties. And if somebody here doesn't ever have any anxieties, I'm terribly envious of you because most of us have some real anxieties about either our past or our future. Things we can worry about but can't change and things that we can't control that also cause us fear. So God offers answers to both of these problems because God is a forgiving God. God is a forgiving God who actually recreates our past by forgiving them. He recreates our past by just wiping the slate clean. Only God can do that. Only God can take those things in our past and then just completely wipe the slate clean and forgive us of all of that. He's also a promising God who promises to provide for our futures. And by making and keeping promises, which is the very nature of God, we have our future secured, even though we don't know what that future is going to look like. The esteemed Jewish philosopher, a woman named Hannah Arendt, once wrote that the only remedy for the inevitable pain in all of our histories is forgiveness. It's the only remedy, forgiveness. What if you could erase all of your past pain and live into a hopeful future? What if that were our goal, that we could erase all of our past pain and live into a hopeful future? With God, we can dare say that's not only possible, this is the very work that God does. You can do it. You can't, in a sense, do it. But through God, you can do it. God does it, we simply embrace it. It's called believing in a forgiving God, a God of forgiveness and love who loves us and forgives us more than we can possibly imagine. Last week, Adam kicked off our summer series on the parables, and he gave us a very helpful overview of this teaching style of Jesus. It's a unique style. It has its own way of being interpreted, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. Today, we turn to one of the central parables in the Gospels, and it goes right to the heart of who Jesus was and what his message was about the Father. So if you'll find your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. 21 and 22 are actually a preliminary to it, where Peter asks Jesus a question, and we'll look at that. And then the parable begins in verse 23 of that text. 
It's a fairly long parable, but it tells us an amazing story and one with which we need to do a little bit of wrestling to understand its full impact and meaning. So first of all, we begin with the preliminary question that Peter asked. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now let me pause here for a moment and say, Peter has really stretched here because Peter is, is trying to sort of, I don't know if it was to win Jesus' approval or not, but he wanted to impress Jesus with the notion that he figured Jesus was a very forgiving human being and God. And so he said, up to seven times? Wow, that's a big number to forgive somebody for the same sin seven times. So he says, up to seven times, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Peter thought he was being extravagantly generous. Seven times is quite a few. Jesus has way up the ante. So this passage has already established the fact, it's already clearly established the fact that God is a forgiving God and God has an unlimited amount of the capability to forgive people for things that they have done wrong. Well, we owe to what follows Peter's question as the answer to his question. And in this teaching, Jesus explains further about the nature of forgiveness. So reading from verse 23 of Matthew chapter 18, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But, verse 28, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. 
here's the bottom line. We could stop here, but I won't. This is too wonderful of a passage and too much fun to work with. But here's the bottom line. We all owe God more than we could ever repay. That's the bottom line of this story. We all owe God more than we could ever repay. And here's why this story is so important, so critical in New Testament theology. So a man owed the king 10,000 talents. Now this is an absurd number. 10,000 talents is pure hyperbole. It's a pure exaggeration. It's told that way for the sake of the story. It's an astronomical sum. It's as much as 100 days, 100 million days wages for the average servant. Let me say that again. It's as much as 100 million days wages for the average servant. In other words, you'd have to live a really long time to work off that debt. It's impossible. It's an exaggeration deliberately. That's a long time to work. It couldn't be done. The poor man owed the king more money than was even in circulation at that time. Now, the forgiveness of debt was not unheard of in Jesus' day. It would be kind of like a, say, a Western Oklahoma farmer in a dry year whose wheat didn't grow. He might go to the bank and say, I know I owe money for the seed and the equipment, but I can't pay it this year. The crop didn't come in. The bank would likely work with that individual, give him another year and hope that it rains the next year. So it was not unheard of now or then to delay a debt. It was not unheard of. But eventually, you had to pay it. The debt was delayed, but eventually you had to pay it. So we see in this story that a man who was forgiven much then refused to forgive the loan of a man who owned him, owed him only a little bit. In comparison, the comparison is as, as far apart as it could possibly be. He refused to forgive the loan of a man who owed him only a little. He was an arrogant and selfish man. He refused to work with that individual. And who, this is the man whom the king reacts to in a very firm way. Now, there's a couple of questions about this parable that scholars love to debate and, and uh, we'll get to the conclusion of it, what I think is a very solid conclusion. But the question first is, is this king like God or is this king not like God? If, is God going to forgive us even if we've asked, if we've asked for, for forgiveness or is God not going to forgive us if we haven't asked for, for forgiveness? Let's put it this way. If God doesn't forgive us even though we've asked for forgiveness, that doesn't square with the parable. And doesn't this do, um, do away with the grace that we've received? When I was studying this parable this week and wrestling with this last part, I kept thinking of verses in the book of Romans where it's very clear that we are saved by grace and nothing that we have earned. So that when God forgives us as forgiven sinners, which all of us are, God really forgives us. He doesn't withhold his grace. 
God forbid if all of us perished this afternoon and we had somebody who we had never forgiven, our theology does not teach that if there's just one person we never forgave, then God isn't going to forgive us. That's not the nature of the whole of the New Testament. So it really brings us to the point of how parables are understood and how they need to be looked at. A parable is a story, sometime with deliberate exaggeration in it, like the amount of money this servant owed to the king. It's a parable, it's a story, it's a, it's a piece of scripture. You can bring other scriptures into the understanding of it, but this one, they all stand alone. They're a piece of teaching from Jesus that people at his time and people in our time would understand. So this teaching is not that God will not forgive us because we have failed to forgive someone whom we might have even forgotten needed forgiving. It's not saying that. It's not saying that at all. Here's the principal thing this parable is teaching. Jesus is saying that grace brings responsibility. Okay, grace brings responsibility. If we as the people of God have received grace from God, then we have a responsibility to offer grace to other people. That's the heart of this story. That's the heart of this story that follows from Peter's basic question. One day in my early ministry life, and I was pretty much a rookie and, you know, but for some reason, I got a call from a, a man in the church where I was serving, and he said he wanted to talk to me, and he had some, a tough issue he needed some help with. So I'm bracing myself for what this might be. It was an older man, and so I'm thinking, I wonder why he'd want to come to a young pastor. But anyway, let's see what happens here. And the guy came, and he unfolded his story. He said, I had a job that I was fired from. And let me tell you what happened. I found out that my boss, the head of the company, had done some really unethical things. He had done some unethical things, probably some unlawful things. And so I was wrestling with what to do with that information. Do I tell somebody else? Do I go to him? Do I just sit on it? He said, I decided to go tell him that I knew and that he needed to do something about this. So I walked into his office, closed the door. I told him these things. I told him what I knew. He didn't say much in response. The next day I came to work and I was told to clean out my desk. I'd been fired. That's how he dealt with it. He didn't straighten out anything. He didn't say he was sorry. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He just fired me. And no one would stand up for me. No one in the company stood up for me. Nobody in the company would offer me any help. There was nothing I could do. By this time in the conversation, the man is literally shaking. He's shaking with anger and frustration and hostility toward this man whom he had confronted who had done wrong and then he fired him for no other reason other than a reprisal because he knew, he knew. So the man was fired and he was absolutely miserable, trembling with anger. So 
not knowing exactly what to say to him, I just asked him about his faith. I asked if he was a believer in Jesus and a follower of his. And furthermore, he, um, that he needed to get a grip on this notion of forgiveness. He said, yeah, I knew that's where you would go with this, to the forgiveness thing. He said, I've had other people tell me I need to forgive this guy. He said, I've had other people tell me that I need to forgive this guy and move on with my life. Is that what you're going to tell me? And I said, pretty much. I don't know what else you can do. Right now, you're really still very, very angry at him. And the only one who is being hurt by this is you. You're not hurting him at all. You haven't changed his behavior one bit. You've got to move on. He says, well, that's what I've been told. He got up, walked out. I never heard from him again. I love happy endings. <laughs> that story is absolutely true. I had to tell him what he needed to hear, but he would prefer to grind his teeth forever about that kind of a injustice. I later heard through a third party that he never did get over it. And he was spending the last years of his life every day grinding on the injury that he had received and the unfairness of it all. And he was not able or he was not willing to let it go through the power of something called forgiveness. I'd love to tell you that the story ended better, but it just didn't. But you see, that's how powerful forgiveness is. We hold in our hands an extraordinary power in the power of forgiveness. It is an extraordinary power. We hold in our hands the power of letting something go into the hands of God who is much better equipped to deal with it than we are. We hold in our hands that very power. The question is, will we use it? Forgiveness is a radical, counterintuitive act that goes completely against the grain of the world at large. The world at large says, get even. Even the score. Make it right. Do damage to the other party. And God says, just hand it over to me. See, we like justice. We like it when the good guy wins and the bad guy gets what he deserves. I have to admit, I'll confess to the church, I, I like movies where the good guy wins and the bad guy gets shot. <laughs> As if that really is real life. I like it when Clint Eastwood says, make my day. That's part of all of what all of us have in us. We love those moments where we get even. And yet when we get even, we've gotten nowhere. This morning as we go to a time of communion, I'd like us to think about something about the power of forgiveness.
And to remember that God in this parable is essentially saying at the very heart of it, there's no room for getting even here. God is a more radical being than that. He knows that the greatest thing in the world is to be forgiven and to forgive. It's the only way to be set free. Forgiveness is the most powerful force known to human beings. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is the most powerful force known to human beings. And our ability through the grace of God to forgive another person who has wounded us, that's the most powerful force you and I have. And oddly, we lose complete control when we try to get even and we gain control when we forgive because our hearts are set free. Our hearts and our minds are set free and we've set that other person free to deal with God as he or she needs to. As we go to a time of communion, I just wanna frame this question. Whom do you need to set free? Is it someone else? Is it someone who has wounded you? Is it someone who's hurt you? Or is the person you need to set free actually you? To experience the real grace of God and to set someone free. Let's pray together. Oh God, we, we recognize what a powerful thing forgiveness is. What an absolutely stunningly powerful thing you have laid into our hands. The ability, the very ability to make someone, to make ourselves whole and to make someone else accessible to your grace. Lord God, in this moment together, may we remember your beautiful and forgiving words at Holy Communion when fully knowing what was coming for you the next day, that very night, you were willing to offer a sacrifice of forgiveness. May we experience that forgiveness in this time together. We pray through Christ the living Lord. Amen.